Well, good morning, church family, and Merry Christmas to you. Whether today is uh, just another Sunday for you because you are a member of Nansman River Baptist Church and you gather here every Sunday morning as our church gathers, or maybe today is your first time in this building with us because a friend or family member invited you, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Thank you for being here uh, with us this morning. Thank you for choosing to gather uh, with our church family this Christmas Eve, I'll invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 2. This morning, we're going to consider one specific part of the Christmas story together. If you are new with us and you have no idea where Matthew is in the Bible, there's a Bible in front of you uh, in the back of the pew. You're free to take that with you as a gift for us. There is no better gift we could give you this Christmas than God's Word. And if you'll just turn to page 807 you will find Matthew chapter 2, and you'll be able to follow along with us as we consider verses 1 through 12 this morning. I'll ask you to stand one more time in honor of the reading of God's Word, and we're going to read this story of the wise men coming to see Jesus after his birth. Matthew tells us in his account of the gospel story, starting in the second chapter, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Church, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gathered body of Christ here, not simply because it is Christmas Eve, but because it is the Lord's Day, the day of the week that Christians are gathered, or the Christians are commanded to gather together to read Scripture, to pray together, to sing together, and to hear the proclaimed word of God, to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus week in and week out. Today happens to be the day before Christmas, where churches around the world will gather not only because it is Sunday, but because we anticipate the return of Jesus by remembering and reminding one another of the birth of Jesus. 
thank you, God, for how you speak to us through your word. Thank you for how it was recorded for us so that we might be wise unto salvation so that we now, wise men in the 21st century, can seek Jesus. Help us to do that, we pray through your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our sermon from Matthew 2 this morning is entitled, Wise Men Still Seek Him. The wise men in the story of the nativity are the most hotly debated. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about who these men are, where they come from, where they go when they leave, or even why they were doing what they were doing. It is often in stories like this, in Scripture and outside of Scripture, the unusual or unexpected characters that show up without us knowing or even uh, expecting them to that, that capture our attention the most. Like Cousin Eddie showing up when Clark has just got the Christmas lights on. Or Gandalf saying, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. The wise men show up as if from nowhere. They, they're not mentioned in any part of scripture. We, didn't, we, we shouldn't even, if we are students of the Old Testament, expect for these magi from the east to appear in this story. It's not a surprise to us that Angels appear because angels are throughout the nativity story. It's not a surprise to us that shepherds would appear because shepherds are a part of the narrative of Scripture. But these men show up as if from nowhere, from a country that is unnamed, an unnumbered group that cause a stir not only amongst the leadership of Israel, but the scriptures tell us in all of Jerusalem, they became concerned because of the message that these men bring. They must have been not only wise, as the scriptures say, but they must have been influential, likely, even though church history is full of stories of who these men are or could have been, where they came from and where they went, even some parts of church history name them. We can likely surmise by what is told here that these men come from an area that would have been known in that day as Persia, modern-day Iran, or at least surrounding areas. Magi in that culture would have been a mix of politician and priest. They studied the stars, among other things, believing that a new star would appear when a king was born. But as we consider these 12 verses together this morning, I want us to see this one truth from Scripture. Because all of the trappings around the wise men, all of the assumptions that we can make, all of the, the, the guesses that we have about who they are, where they come from, all of that can be fun to discuss. But there's a reason Matthew includes this story here in his gospel account. It's so we will know that the truly wise know that Christ has revealed himself to us and is worthy of our worship. I don't know who the wise men were or where they come from, but they set an incredible example to us on this Christmas Eve to seek and worship 
the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah sent at just the right time to save all who would believe. We're going to see this in three parts today, and I hope this progression will make sense to you as not only we we walk through the story, but we walk through the progressive revelation of God revealing himself to his people. Number one, the truly wise know that creation proclaims its creator. The truly wise know that creation proclaims its creator. Look back in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 2 with me. Now as Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now what we normally consider to be the Christmas story takes place in Luke chapter 2 where Mary and Joseph have traveled from Nazareth, their hometown, to Bethlehem, the ancestral home of Joseph who would be the stepfather of Jesus because they were commanded to do so in order that they may be taxed. A census was taking place so you would go back to your ancestral home and Bethlehem became a very crowded place and Mary and Joseph traveled finding no place to sleep and so they they settled in a stable in a barn in an area meant for animals and then that night Mary gave birth and angels appeared Luke tells us to shepherds out in the field and the shepherds come those to first receive the good news of Jesus come and worship him and then go out into the countryside declaring all that the angels had told them sometime later Matthew, in his account, picks up that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we do not know how long after. Church tradition holds, it was 12 days. That's why, by the way, there's 12 days of Christmas, that Christmas is the first day, and then Epiphany, the, the, the celebration of the visit of the Magi, 12 days later on January the, the 6th, marks that day in church history. We don't know. It was anywhere from a few days to one to two years later that the wise men show up. And Matthew leaves out details that we may want, but they're not important to the point of the story. The point of the story is that these men saw a star and followed that star. It says in verse two, where, he who has been born, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You see, there was an ancient theory that's likely at work here that every time a new star appeared in the heavens, it was because a new king was born on earth. Now, there are many modern ideas. You could Google today. I did it. What do people believe the star of Bethlehem was? And you're going to get any number of, of answers. That, there's, that really what they saw wasn't a star, it was a, a planet alignment, that two or more planets aligned, creating a very bright light in the sky and that they followed this. Some say that it was a supernova, a star that has exploded and so it glows much brighter than normal. Some say that it was a comet visiting our solar system. Others say that this was the first rising of, the, of a star, a known star even in the east, or maybe the creation of a whole new star. Here's my answer. You ready for it? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Who cares? Because it really doesn't matter. I know you may want to know, but I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what they saw. All that matters is that they saw something. 
And in seeing something, they knew that they needed to follow it, and so they did. Here's what these wise men understood that we need to understand today. What, Ma- what Psalms 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God declares his presence to his creation every day in the fact that we exist in an ordered purposeful, regulated universe. Here's the truth, my friend. It it, it is intellectually impossible to look at the universe that we live in from a macro scale, the billions of stars and billions of galaxies that, that exist that we can see now with our technology down to a micro scale, the, 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 the molecules that make up even you and I, and, and to deny that there is that this is ordered and purposeful and regulated. There is a creator, and the creation reminds us of that. From the largest to the smallest, God declares by his creation that he has made everything for his glory. Let's just take for a minute you. You are a human, a unique human. There are 8 billion of us alive on the planet today, every single one of us unique. And what we have discovered over the period of time is that what makes us unique is, is the building blocks of a person, what we know as DNA. It's how they're able to ter- determine one person from another in their DNA. And if you were to write out human DNA in 12-point font on pieces of paper and put the story of you in a book, that book would fill 2,329,000 pages. That's how long the story of just you is, 2,329,000 page book. And that is told 8 billion times over again just of people alive today. The heavens declare the glory of God. The creation itself tells us of a creator. We know, uh, we call this what's, what's known as general revelation. That this information, just looking around, it should be apparent to us that God exists. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter one. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's Paul's argument in Romans chapter one. It's been clear since the very beginning that God made everything and that God exists and that, that his divine nature and, and, and eternal power have been revealed to us through general revelation of his creation, but we have denied that to worship the creation instead of the creator. In today's world, we don't necessarily worship idols that resemble animals and birds and creeping things, but we certainly are idolaters because we worship ourselves. Part of the creation 
We worship our, our own understanding. We worship our own ingenuity. We worship our own creativity. We worship our own individuality. And that is just as much idolatry as ancient idolatry was. Even though God has made himself plain to us through his creation, we miss it. So many in our world are seeking their own way. Maybe you even here gathered today, here, friend, you're seeking your own way. You've already kind of tuned me out. You're thinking, this guy's nuts. All that we know now about science, all that we know now about about creation, all that we know about the world, and you're still going to tell me that God made it all? Absolutely I am, friend. Because it's impossible to look at it and to believe anything else. The more science tells us about our world, the more science tells us about our universe, the more our world and the universe declares the glory of the creator who made all things. And this knowledge is enough to condemn, Paul says in Romans 1. And so here we have these wise men who see this star in the east and and whatever legend or myth or science drove them to go and find the king of the Jews, they did it. Because truly wise men recognize that the creation declares a creator. Number two, the truly wise trust in scripture as God's special revelation about himself and his plan of redemption. The truly wise trust in scripture as God's special revelation about himself and his plan of redemption. Pick up in verse three with me. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So these wise men must have been powerful enough to gain an audience with Herod. Herod is is the king of the, the land of Israel. He is not an Israelite. That's important. He was seen by the people as a usurper, but he ruled with an iron fist. And so uh, he was an evil man, but everyone remained under his authority, and he was placed in that position of authority by the emperor of Rome. And Herod, who's by the time of the birth of Jesus, whose power was somewhat waning there in the Middle East, uh, was doing everything he could to to control his power, to, 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 to hold on to his power. When he dies, his, his, his ruling area is actually split up amongst his children. They weren't able to hold on to it in the way that, that he was. And so to receive this news that a new king has been born, it certainly would have troubled this wicked and evil man who then calls together scribes and the chief priests, gets the, the smart people in the room and says, well, if this were to happen, where would it happen? And they answer him. Verse five, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now I've had the opportunity to go to Israel twice. I've been to both Jerusalem where this conversation took place and Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And let me tell you, it's, it's basically, they went, it's over there in Portsmouth. I mean, really, it's that close, okay? Bethlehem's just not all that far away from Jerusalem. But it's not really all that important either. The, the one claim to fame that Bethlehem had was that David was born there the son of Jesse, the second king of Israel, who God had promised he would establish his his royal line forever. 
And so he calls the scribes, he calls the chief priests together and says, where is this supposed to happen? Oh, it's supposed to happen over there in, in Bethlehem. Now we know from the later actions of Herod that he isn't actually seeking to worship Jesus. He doesn't actually believe that the king of the Jews has been born. The question the Magi ask infer that Herod is what the people saw him as, and that was a usurper. And that now a true heir could be born, and his sign was in the heavens. And so Herod calls the scribes with this ulterior motive, but Matthew uses it to teach a crucial lesson, one that Matthew has already addressed and will continue to address in his gospel account. And that is not only does God reveal himself in a general way through creation, but God reveals himself in a specific way through scripture. This is known as special revelation where God tells us certain things about himself and truth about his plan of redemption. And so what the scribes quote here is from Micah chapter five. And you can see the quotation there in your Bible that that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter five was written in the eighth century BC. So it was about 750 years or so before this event took place. It was foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So about 750 years later, it actually happens. It's important for us to note that this isn't the only fulfillment of, of its kind in scripture. You see, all of scripture tells us either of the coming Messiah, the need for a coming Messiah, who the Messiah would be, or what the Messiah does and why he does it. This goes all the way back to the very beginning. In the beginning, Adam and Eve, living in perfect harmony with God, choose disobedience and sin, and God judges them for their sin and judges the enemy, the serpent who deceived them. And in Genesis chapter three, in that judgment of the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, going back into ancient history, all the way at the very beginning, long before any of us could even, uh, uh, we, we would have been thought of to exist, here God is saying, All of humanity is going to have this massive sin problem. And yet God has the solution. It is the seed of the woman who will one day crush the head of the serpent. Go back to that time of Micah, 8th century BC. There were other prophets in that same time. Probably the most famous one was the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 7, Verse 14, we read, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We sang about Emmanuel, God with us this morning. And in Matthew chapter one, Matthew tells us of the fulfillment of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. Also in the eighth century was a minor prophet known as Hosea. And in Hosea chapter 11, we read, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a prophecy of what would happen next in Matthew chapter 2, where Mary and Joseph would take Jesus and flee to Egypt to avoid Herod, who was killing infants, to try to stamp out the one who would be born, the king of the Jews. All of this foretold in Scripture But it wasn't only Jesus' birth that is foretold in Scripture. It was also his life and death. For instance, in that famous prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, we read, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he has done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So not only was the birth of the Messiah foretold, the death of the Messiah was foretold, and Matthew 27 tells us that Isaiah 53 is true about the death and burial of Jesus. So why does all of this matter? Well, it matters because scripture isn't just interesting stories for us to read. It's not just good advice that we can pass on to our children. Scripture is the story of God, the creator of the world, revealing himself to us and his plan to redeem us from our sin through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So, Jesus dies on a cross, is buried with the wicked. And then on that early Sunday morning, why the church gathers every Sunday morning? Because early on that Sunday morning, the power of God raises the son of God to life. And his disciples come to the tomb and the angel says, he is not here for he is risen. You didn't know you were getting an Easter sermon on Christmas Eve, did you? Later that day, Two of the disciples are walking to another town, not all that far away from Jerusalem, known as Emmaus. And Jesus, who, who hid his uh, true nature from them, joins them on that walk. And, and they tell Jesus of all that had happened that weekend about his crucifixion and, and how now they've gone to the tomb and, and his body was gone. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says, Jesus responds to them in this. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, things concerning himself. You've probably heard somebody say to you this week, maybe you were, maybe you're a child and you were getting a little, you were getting a little antsy about what kind of presents you were going to get, or, or, or maybe you were antsy about how you're going to buy all the presents. Somebody reminded you, you know, you know, Jesus is the reason for the seasons. You, you hear people say this. You know, Christmas isn't the only thing that is about Jesus. Easter isn't the only thing that is about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. All of scripture tells us about Jesus. And this is why Luke tells us that starting all the way back with Moses and the prophets, Jesus walks these through disciples through all of scripture and says, how did you not know this wasn't all about me? The entire story of scripture is the story of Jesus. This is why there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies. We've just looked at maybe four or five of them. 300 Old Testament prophecies that perfectly fulfill in the birth, life, death, or resurrection of Jesus. You see, God didn't just create the world and leave us guessing. He spoke through prophets and priests and kings and disciples to reveal his will carried along by the Holy Spirit 
scripture for us so that we can know true and certain things about God and his plan of redemption. This is why the apostle Paul writing to his protege in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You've noticed all of my points so far have talked about being truly wise. Let me tell you something, my friend. Today, you can only be truly wise through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, creation tells us that there is a God, but scripture shows us how that God loves us enough to send his son to die in our place that we might have eternal life. And it's through the truth of scripture alone that our eyes can be opened by the power of the Holy Spirit, making us wise to salvation through faith in Christ. So creation tells us there is a God. Scripture tells us who that God is and what that God has done. What then is our response? Well, we share in the response of the wise men because the truly wise worship Christ as their eternal king. The truly wise worship Christ as their eternal king. Pick up with me back in Matthew 2, starting verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That's a lie. He wanted to kill him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Tradition tells us there were three wise men because there are three gifts. And if there's even outside of the church, if there are things people know about the wise men, it's, it's the gifts that they know. Now, we don't know the exact reason these men brought these gifts. But here's what we do know. We do know that of the four gospel accounts, one of them was specifically written to Hebrew people. It's the story, it's the gospel account of Matthew. Matthew begins in Matthew chapter 1 by painstakingly tracing the genealogy of Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, all the way back to Abraham to, to show that, that, that Jesus is who, who the prophet said he would be, that he's in the line that he was supposed to be from. And this would be important to Matthew's Hebrew readers. But then he introduces to us these three non-Hebrews. These three wise men from the east who who have come. And and so we don't know in their minds why they brought these gifts, but we can ascertain what the Hebrew people would have heard when they heard of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because gold in scripture represents royalty. For instance, in, in 1 Kings chapter 10, we're told of Solomon, the son of David's great wealth one of the wealthiest men to ever live on the planet. And in, in 1 Kings chapter 10, over the course of seven verses, gold is mentioned 10 times because royalty possessed gold. Frankincense, something we don't really think a lot of, is a tree resin. But it represents deity. 
It was an ingredient used in incense and offering sacrifices to the Lord in both Exodus 30 and Leviticus 2. And its use in its its use in personal matters, like for perfume for people, was strictly forbidden in the scripture. And then myrrh, also a tree resin, but kind of the exact opposite of frankincense. It was used almost exclusively in human perfumes, specifically for the preparation of the dead. So these three gifts brought possibly by three wise men, we don't know, to Matthew's original readers would have clearly represented royalty. It would have represented the deity of Christ. It would have represented the humanity of Christ. They are teaching us about worshiping Jesus as our eternal king, fully God and fully man who came to die in our place so that we might live. The gifts of these magi and the posture that they have before them still speaks to us today. So my question for you, my friend, is what gift do you bring? You may say, I don't have any gold to bring to Jesus today. He's not asking you for your gold. You may say, I've never even heard of frankincense. I wouldn't even know where to go and get such a thing. Or, or myrrh, what am I supposed to do? I can't bring any of those things. None of those things are what Jesus asks of you today. What is it that Jesus asks for you? Well, the apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does Jesus ask of you today, my friend? He asks of everything of you, that you would give your very life over to him. It's not about your gold. It's not about your fine things. It's not about your perfume. It's not about your money. It's not about your wealth. It's not about any of these things. Jesus wants your life because it is with our lives that we worship Christ as our eternal king. I'm glad you're here today. I really am. Whether you come here every week or this is your first time to be here, I'm truly glad and grateful that, that I mean, this room's just about completely full. I'm grateful for that. I, I, I am. Here's what I want you to hear, though. Coming and sitting in this room is not what Jesus demands of you. It's good, and it's something we're told in Scripture to do, but it doesn't credit you anything. What Scripture ultimately asks of us, what our King, Jesus, ultimately asks of us is that we would take up our cross and follow him, that we would believe in him revealed to us as the Messiah, who is worthy of all worship and praise. And we would follow King Jesus, not just with our gold, not just with our time, but with everything in us. That we would give everything we are and everything we have to the one who stepped out of eternal glory, put on skin and died for you, giving everything he had. And so we just emulate him. So what? Have you been made truly wise through faith in the good news of Jesus? This is the most important question that I can ask you. Are, are you truly wise today? You may think yourself wise in this world. You may even pride yourself on the education that you've amassed or the skills that you've amassed or the street wisdom that you've amassed. And you may think that those things add up to something. But hear me, my friend, they add up to nothing in this world if you do not have Jesus. 
Because we only become truly wise through faith in the gospel of Jesus. The word gospel means good news. It is the good news of Jesus that God, at just the right time, sent his son to die in your place. It is only through faith in this that you may be truly wise in this world. Think about how the Apostle Paul ends a letter that we've already looked at twice, his letter to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 16, in the benediction of that letter, Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the one wise God. Be glory forever through Christ Jesus, amen. If there's any Christmas present I could give you today, it's not a present wrapped in a box. It's not gonna be hung in a stocking. It's the simple truth that you, you can be wise unto salvation today through the gospel of Jesus. You see, there are not innumerable paths to wisdom, my friend. There is but one And if you are wise today, it is because Christ is your king. And if he is not your king, then I would implore you, my friend, to seek him and find him through his revealed truth to us. Believe today and be saved. For the last four weeks, our church has read scripture, both Old Testament and New, lighting candles of the Advent wreath. The purpose of our annual Advent reading in the four Sundays leading up to Christmas is to focus our hearts and minds on the truth of Scripture, that the Messiah came to save us, that we are reminding ourselves weekly of the gospel that has been preached this morning. But that's just one side of the coin, my friend. The other thing, the other reason that we do this is not only to remind us that Jesus came, but that Jesus is coming again. The same scriptures that so clearly told us that Jesus would come also clearly tells us that Jesus will return. And so here in our Christmas Eve service, we will again light the middle candle of the Advent wreath in a moment, reminding us not only of the first Advent of Jesus, but on his return. And so I would ask you this question, are you ready for that return? The only way that you can be ready for the return of Christ, the only way that you will be ready for that day, that unknown day that Christians so eagerly await is to have placed your faith, your hope, your trust in Christ alone. The candle does not want to light. So now with the four outer candles lit and the center candle of our Advent wreath lit, we are reminded that hope, peace, joy, and love are all found in Jesus. The fullness of each of these things found in Christ alone. It is the faith of the work of Christ that we look back on and are assured of our salvation. And it is the hope of the return of Christ that we, his church, eagerly wait. And you too, my friend, can wait with us if you will but put your faith and trust in Jesus. 
I'll invite both our worship team and those families who are going to help us uh, light candles to come forward as I pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word to us, for how you didn't just leave us guessing about our creator, but you revealed yourself in your word so that we might know you. Thank you, God, that you didn't leave us not only wondering about you, but you didn't leave us in our sin, dead in our disobedience. But you sent your son to die in our place that we might find life. As we celebrate Jesus this Christmas season, not only his birth, but as we longingly look forward to his return, may we proclaim the good news of Jesus, the gospel of our Lord, until that day. Thank you, God, for the light of Christ that invades the darkness of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your candle, church, and stand with us uh, as we sing.